Well, come on, West 15 and 60 time. Let's see what we get through here. We're going to go net rating style, cleaning the glass net rating through the Western Conference. Uh, Danny, put on your navigation hat. Where are we starting? We're starting in Phoenix, where the Suns are actually number one in the Western Conference in both record and net rating at 13 and six overall, five and two since the last 15 and 60. They're second in the overall NBA plus 6.6 in net rating, third in offense, fifth in defense. And the 538 models actually disagree a little bit. They're third in the West in Raptor at 52 wins and at the same 52 wins in ELO, 538's model, but that they project to be first in the West and over a 90% chance of making the best of seven Western Conference playoffs. And I kind of ended up going in two directions with Phoenix. And the first of those was kind of how are they navigating the absence of Cam Johnson? And the answer primarily has been playing more of Torrey Craig. And the Suns do not really have a ton of front court depth in part because Jay Crowder is still not with the team and not traded for somebody else who could be with the team. But what Torrey Craig has done, which is is nice for them, is I mean, of course, he competes defensively, but he occupies kind of a different space because Craig only 13 usage this year, but he's making his threes 41% on a reasonable rate. You know, 5.2 per 36 isn't, it's not Cam Johnson level, but he's doing... For, for a power forward, which is what yeah. playing, that's that's acceptable. That's uh, maybe a... It's about average. The five or six per 36 minutes, that's about it for a, a, a power forward in today's NBA and hitting 41%. Like that's, I don't expect that to continue, but we're talking about what they've done so far and it's been good. It has been. And, and what's even more impressive from Phoenix's perspective as they've been kind of going through this is in quote unquote normal circumstances, you would say, oh yeah, I mean, Phoenix, if they need to sop up usage, the difference between Torrey Craig's offensive role and Cam Johnson's, they have lots of ways they can do that. But remember that this absence has largely coincided with Chris Paul being out. And so the Suns have had to lean more heavily on campaign and, of course, Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and Mikhail Bridges. And that generally has gone pretty well overall as a rough proxy for this iteration of the of the starters. Booker, Ayton, and Craig playing together actually have a negative 7.5 net rating in 520 possessions, but that's mostly because the team has been really unlucky in terms of opponent shooting. And the most used lineup there, again, tying in with the Chris Paul thing, it's not Chris Paul, and so basically Torrey Craig is the only sub. It's campaign, Booker, Bridges, Craig, and Ayton. And just as a point of reference, Booker plus Ayton plus Cam Johnson, only 150 possessions, which is kind of stunning when you think about the season so far for the Suns, but a plus 23.3 net rating. Um, and so that's worth keeping an eye on. Then the other thing that I, I, I was taking an interest in with them is I, I, this whole idea of like, okay, you have to add usage. What is that doing for DeAndre Ayton? And Ayton offensively, his stats are remarkably consistent. So last year he had 21.4 usage. This, it was, when I started logging it, identical 21.4, but he had a more successful last, the last game they played when they beat the Jazz, 113-112. Ayton had 29 points, and so that bumped it up to, I believe it's 22.1 now. And I want to give Aiton credit that, you know, he's his efficiency is down a little bit, but still making his twos. And, you know, mostly that's just he's taking a few more threes and not making them. That's not a huge, huge surprise. And so, I mean, with Aiden, we wondered if his role was going to change. They had such a tumultuous end of season and off season. And really what the Suns are asking him to do, even with a different point guard now campaign, just shouldering more of the burden with Chris Paul still limited. And Aiton's, you know, he's the same guy. 
Yeah, we, we talked some about that uh, and his post-ups uh, last week uh, as well. So you just kind of wonder how it is they're doing this. How can they be third in offense with Devin Booker? Really no other premium perimeter creators. We have seen a bounce back from campaign to at least acceptable levels, but he's not as been amazing as a starting point guard 54 percent true shooting and some of the support guys have been really good uh, bridges uh, continues to be unbelievably efficient 64 percent true shooting for him but he's only a 16 usage guy and damian lee has also given them a lot he shot the ball really well at 64 percent true shooting but other than those two guys, there hasn't been anyone who's been crazy efficient. Booker, after a really, really hot start, he's kind of back around his career norms in terms of usage and efficiency. And one of the things that really stands out, though, is just generally how little they turn the ball over at 13%, and then how good they've been on the offensive glass, 30% offensive rebounds overall. So that makes up for them being actually only 13th in e-field goal percentage and 26th in getting to the line, the possession game. Uh, has really been what's driven them to this level and that even in the absence of, of chris paul has been excellent so you might think hey this possession game stuff like does that really work in the playoffs like you know I, again i have my skepticism about phoenix on both ends in <coughs> the playoffs but as of right now like they have found a winning formula in the regular season they won last year when chris paul was out they're doing it again this year uh, how about on the defensive end danny anything that sticks out uh, for you in terms of their defensive performance uh, from deandre ayton in particular uh, somewhat i i so ayton he in terms of the tracking stats he's contesting about 4.8 shots per game and opponents are converting 65 percent of them that 65 percent is well above the 55.5 it was last year and the number of contests is a little bit lower than most of Aiton's center brethren but I, I think that will improve a little bit with time you know this is again it's a small sample size you're not contesting that many shots at the rim over the course of a season and but one of the things that's surprising to me is that estimated plus minus CPM has been supportive of Aiton so far 91st percentile at plus 1.3 DEPM for Aiton when you consider that the Suns have actually been more effective defensively by by the scale of five points per 100 possessions when Aiton has been off the floor. There are a number of reasons why you could think that that's a little bit fluky. For example, like opponents are shooting 39.5% on threes when Aiton's out there. He's not controlling that a ton. But it is interesting. It is interesting that the models kind of kind of give him some credit there. And one other just kind of fun stat with that, I was when I was looking at the contested shots per game a few days ago, the top two players in most frequent contests per game are former teammates. Miles Turner, who we would have expected on the list, and someone that will come up in a later team section, DeMontis Sabonis, contesting 7.6 per game. That's, that's pretty interesting. And like two years ago when they had a second unit that somehow was awesome defensively with a small lightly regarded backup center of Sharich two years ago this year it's Jock Landale who has usurped the, the likes of Bismack Biombo in the rotation and Sharich himself as well who hasn't really figured and they have a 102 defensive rating with Landale on the floor again you noted the fluky shooting with Aiton I'm not going to dig into it with Landale I'm guessing it's kind of the same but it, it still it feels like smoke and mirrors and some of the stuff they do as we talked about is things that are not don't show up as much you know it's rebounding it's avoiding turnovers and the fact is they're still third in offense and fifth in defense even though it is a more compacted slate in those areas than it has been maybe in past years 
So we could move from the Phoenix Suns to the number two Western Conference team in Clean the Glass. Can I I guess who it is? I'm trying to think of who it even is. Pels? It is the New Orleans Pelicans. The Pelicans are 11 and 8 on the season, 4 and 2 since the last 15 and 60, and they're fifth in net rating, plus 5.5 per 100 possessions. There's a little group with them, the Bucks, and the Cavs, who are just slightly above New Orleans right now. New Orleans, fifth in offense, sixth in defense. They are one of only three teams joining the Suns and the Cleveland Cavaliers, who are top 10 in both offense and defense as we record this podcast, roughly 20 games into the season. And the 538 models are pretty optimistic. 47 wins on Raptor, 49 on ELO, which are both good for fourth in the Western Conference. And each model gives them in the 80s as a percentage chance of making the 18 best of seven playoff. And the Pelicans, I mean, it's it's been impressive. They've, like many of these teams, they've navigated absences. And unfortunately, they dealt with some significant absences during their tough loss on Friday to the Memphis Grizzlies. Yeah, I always hate this when a team's playing well. And I'm like, all right, let me lock in on them. And then they just get completely blown out and uncharacteristic fashion and cj mccollum was out i don't think they had any other major ingram left early right uh yeah he did but as they were already pretty much done at that point in the game yeah they were down by like 18 in the middle of the second quarter uh and were not looking too good we'll say we'll get into that a little bit more uh against the grizz uh, who played really well we'll fold them into this also and so i am i'm gonna be pretty negative on the pels because they got completely destroyed and were really never in this game they got it down to 13 at one point in the second but the grizz led 27 to 9 seven minutes into the game and basically Basically, we're up by at least 15 and almost 20 for probably 95% of the remainder of the game. And yeah, they they were missing CJ McCollum. That certainly hurt them. But of course, the, the Grizz are missing Desmond Bain as well. And it was interesting, starting with the first couple of years, the Pels always seemed to get the better of the Grizz in the Jaws-Zion matchups. And that has changed, at least as of this last game. I haven't looked at what their matchups were last year, but I didn't play it all last year, so you can't really count that. And I think a big part of that is... Jonas Valanciunas, there was a feeling that Valanciunas was just a way better player than Steven Adams, and they do different things. I think Valanciunas was really valuable to the Pels last year, but uh, to me, he's really struggled for them this season, and, and they've looked so much better with Larry Nance out there, and I just thought it was and CJ McCollum isn't going to help with this, just a somewhat depressing defensive effort from the Pels, not even necessarily in terms of like the intensity was too low, but just I thought Memphis did a fantastic job, and they great personnel, obviously, to attack and pick and roll a job, but I thought they overall did a great job on both ends of attacking the weaknesses of New Orleans. Valanchunas got put in pick and roll a number of times by Ja early. Ja got that pick and roll split on him, which it, it, they tried to get Valanchunas a little further up, I guess, so that Ja couldn't go like right downhill at him, but that just led to Valanchunas getting split and getting behind the play. Another play, they brought Dylan Brooks out of the corner and screened with Steven Adams and Valanciunas had to step up, stepped up probably too hard. And then Adams got behind for an easy layup. Steven Adams actually posted up 
on Valanciunas three times and scored on him all three times. That's probably somewhere where you'd say Valanciunas could and should be better. Well, and and Nate, that actually ties in with one of the stats that I find fascinating about this Pelicans team is that I mentioned mentioned that they're sixth in defense right now. They are giving up the league's highest opponent field goal percentage at the rim, 71.4%. And that has been a weakness for them each of the last three seasons. Now, something that the Pels do well is they don't give up a ton of shots at the rim and they're not fouling a ton but that is a little bit of a concern that if teams are getting there and then the thing that the pelicans are doing best in terms of effective field goal percentage defense is that teams aren't making threes and generally we expect that to regress to the meet yeah and it did uh, with the grizz hitting six of their first 10 in this game as they got out to their lead as the pels struggled to shoot it the other pal who really struggled defensively was trey murphy and he was just completely powerless against Ja Ja when he was getting downhill and semi-transition. He saw Murphy on, even though Murphy has you know, got a big wingspan, he's 6'8". Ja was like, oh, I'm going to just go right through this guy. And he just blew right past him for layups. They didn't have help in position for those plays. And Trey also, Dylan Brooks went right through him for an ISO, got right to the rim as well. Brooks is not really known for like his power driving. He's usually going to get more of the mid-range. So I thought Trey Murphy had one of those games that reminded you of why he didn't have that big of a role to start last season and of course Zion you know I didn't think Zion was the main problem in this game he was largely guarding either David Roddy or Jaron Jackson Jr but Zion certainly wasn't able to be a supplemental help defender they weren't going right at him but he wasn't like cleaning up any of these messes that were developing elsewhere and uh, Jose Alvarado likes to pressure up but like you can't pressure John Morant like he's just gonna blow right by you Steven Adams was setting bone crushing screens and then Ja was getting right downhill and the Grizz uh, were making a ton of shots they got out in transition as well Tyus Jones got a couple of threes in transition late first early second and Ja also had a couple of deep threes right at the end of the first in fact Taylor Jenkins who I thought coached a masterful game put him in just for one possession at the end of the first uh, he hit a three and then he hit an even deeper three in a two for one situation at the end of the second and then set up Conchar for a buzzer beating three as well and that's a what pushed it to 20 at halftime and really put the game out of reach uh Uh, something else i want to track for the pelicans is that last year i mean defense was of course the calling card for herb jones but we were excited because jones shot 34 percent from three albeit on a very low amount of attempts it was just 2.6 three-point attempts for 36 minutes this year pretty similar attempt rate 3.3 that's in the same ballpark but again small sample size 11 to 39 which is 28 percent from herb jones and Really, the we, we talk about kind of the frontier of, of frequency and success, and we've seen a couple of different times now where opponents have been willing to put their bigs on Herb Jones, and the Willie Green and the Pelicans have done some things, cuts and everything else to combat that, but it becomes harder if he, you need to reach a certain threshold in order for this to, like, if we're, if we're talking about the Pelicans, you know, they've been the second best team in net rating, the 538 models project them, considering their absences and everything else, to be fourth in the Western Conference, they have a lot of depth, but they're going to need they're going to need these guys to to be a little bit more in certain cases than they've been so far. 
Yeah, let's talk about the Grizz. We can talk about what happened the other end of the floor. Grizz are 12 and 8, 3 and 3 since we last checked in. They had a nice win on the road against the Knicks today. Eighth in the NBA net rating, 2.7. They are eighth on offense and 17th on defense. Interestingly enough, they actually project for the one seed per Raptor in the Western Conference. Elo has them for the two seed. 53 wins Raptor, 50 wins Elo. So the system likes their players better than the way they've been playing so far. 98% chance to play us on Raptor, 89% on ELO. And Ja, we were worried about this ankle injury that he had. He came back very quickly from an ankle injury, remember, at the start of his second season, but didn't really seem to be himself. Uh, he actually only ended up missing one game. Unreal. Somehow. Uh, and he looked totally good in this New Orleans game. He had 27 and 14 against the Knicks in their win as yeah. well. If, yeah, he had a career high in assists and a triple double in that game against the Knicks on 127 123 on Sunday. And he actually tied Marcus Gasol for the most triple doubles in Grizz history with his fifth of his career. And I was just very impressed with the overall approach from this Grizzlies team. You mentioned Herb Jones and his shooting struggles so far this year. What they decided to do was actually, you'd think, oh, well, Jaron Jackson Jr. is a power forward. You have him guard Zion. He's pretty foul prone. He did get his uh, Derek Gere three fouls in the first half. Uh, but they actually went with Dylan Brooks guarding Zion. I thought Dylan Brooks did a pretty nice job. Remember, he had some success guarding Carl Anthony Towns in the playoffs last year. And Brooks, he's just strong. He's rugged and is able to get in design enough that he wasn't able to get that huge head of steam early on they went to some different looks uh, later on with Zion that that looked a little bit better I thought the Grizz uh, this maybe wasn't the greatest plan yet like they were very locked into not letting Zion go left but they were giving him so much of the right hand that he could just accelerate and then he just had whatever option he wanted at the rim like they weren't even able to stay attached to him because he was so quick and they're basically like opening up their hips and giving him a straight line drive I think you shade left certainly with Zion but it's really more when he posts up and goes to the spin move Move that you really need to be concerned about the left. I thought Zion had he had a nice right-handed finish. Uh, I thought his approach was pretty good offensively when they got him in the ball. There were a couple of times where he had like Jake Laraviano and they, they just didn't get it to him. And I, I thought Zion could have been more active ducking in it and the like. But part of why he wasn't able to get going early was you've got Dylan Brooks on him, and then they put Jaron Jackson Jr., their best shot blocker, on Herb Jones and just said, Hey, we're gonna help off of him and we're gonna dare Herb to shoot. He hit one, but he missed a couple pretty badly in the first. And you you deal with that because all right, you hit one three. Yeah, but we the other 20 possessions you're in the game in the first quarter, we helped off of you and, and made it more difficult for him. So he would have had to make a bunch of them to get him out of that coverage. He wasn't able to do that. They didn't really still even find him uh, that often uh i thought john conchar was very solid against brandon ingram as well before ingram went out with i think was it a toe injury yes it was and and, and ingram is listed as i believe it's doubtful for their game on monday against okc and cj mccollum will still be in the health and safety protocols for that one as well yeah and that's, it's been a shame that the Pels haven't been able to quite get a rhythm with their full rotation available but uh, i thought john conchar did a really nice job uh, against brandon ingram getting into his body conchar another one of these rugged defenders and they don't have desmond bain they don't have zyre williams but conchar did enough that he wasn't getting totally lit up by ingram again they had uh, plenty of help 
behind uh, these individual matchups as well uh one of the things that i'm concerned about for new orleans as well larry nance looks very spry he's been good on the offensive glass he just obliterated david roddy with the dunk uh, when they threw it over the top to him in the post fronted by morant but larry nance doesn't have the greatest health record he's feeling good he had that surgery last year his knee had been bothering him but it's hard for me to imagine that he's gonna be a high 20s minutes per game guy make it through this whole season and I thought Nance, you know, he's a solid switch guy against a lot of teams. They didn't really seem to want to get him in the Morant matchup, but when Morant got downhill against him, Nance is not really an unbelievable rim protector, so Morant was able to attack him. Ja was just a really difficult matchup for this Pels team because they are not able to switch and they just have a lot of places that he can attack. But if Larry Nance goes down, I think I've said this before, they have between CJ Zion and Ingram, they have so much offensive firepower. They've got good depth at point guard nance might be their most indispensable player particularly because they need someone who fits better next to zion than valanchunas at the end of games last four minutes of the second they actually went with zion at center that looked okay for a brief period and then the grizz hit a bunch of threes right at the end to push it back to 20 and ingram got hurt so we didn't really get a chance to look at that they were going with ingram herb dyson daniels zion and i think it was jose alvarado as the point guard so just trying to put a lot of length around zion but that's also when you've got herb and dyson daniels out there you're not really getting the spacing that you're hoping to have in those zion at center lineups to really turbocharge him on the offensive end and it looked okay on defense but we didn't get a chance to see enough of it there so this is a kind of a depressing game for the pals and too bad cj and ingram are out they've shown a lot of potential at times but this is also a team that has a lot of weaknesses i don't expect them to be a top 10 defense all season like that just seems you mentioned their hot shooting but for now they're doing well enough you just wish that they've been able to take a little bit more advantage record wise here to put themselves into clear playoff position but it, it seems like they should still be comfortably in the playoffs i don't see them as like a home court advantage team in the end though uh unless the entire rest of the west continues to struggle i just don't think they have quite the upside when you consider their health and defensive limitations but nate one other point just to mention briefly he, he was dealing with an injury to start the year but jackson hayes has only played 62 minutes this season and so, yeah, John wrote about him as a guy who might need a, a change of scenery. We haven't really seen him play the five at all. And Hayes is someone, if Nance were to miss time, who could maybe get more tick for them. But it's still hard to play him. He's another guy who doesn't really fit with Zion. And I don't think he would solve their defensive problems playing center next to Zion, although they would probably have to try that if Nance were to go down. So we got the Grizz. We got the pels can i try and guess who's next in net rating you can try mavs nope warriors yes the golden state warriors are now seventh in the nba in net rating third in the western conference overall we'll start with their record the golden state warriors are 11 and 10 on the season six and three since the last 15 and 60 not going to do the full stats on since they excised james wiseman from the rotation um plus 2.8 net rating is good for seventh in the league seventh in offense 20 on defense and the Raptor model projects the Warriors to win 47 and finish fifth. Elo, in part because of how much better they've been playing recently, 50 wins and the three seed in the West. And you and I 
broadcast the game against the Timberwolves on the NBA strategy stream. And this one started out with the Warriors dropping 47 points in the first quarter, which was the second most any team has scored in a first quarter this year behind only the Knicks in that OKC game. They had 40 in the first nine minutes of the game. Yeah, it was completely incredible. Steph Curry was orchestrating a lot of it. Clay Thompson hit some shots. Andrew Wiggins had a a couple of threes and started the game with that awesome alley-oop dunk against his former team. And the Warriors offense wasn't sterling throughout the rest of it, but that electric first quarter was absolutely a part of it. And well, and, and that first quarter, I mean, the number one thing that stood out to me is they were very locked in on the Wolves' weaknesses. And uh, this is a team that in the past has kind of reveled in going against players that they, I think, don't have a ton of respect for internally. And, you know, Towns and D'Angelo Russell probably fall into that list. I'm not sure if Rudy Gobert does uh, or not, because uh, Gobert is a is had his moments against them although ultimately they've usually gotten the better of him because he is a a drop center but uh, the way they pushed the pace early on against this languid wolves transition defense was really something to behold and they were doing it really from two early on more than from three right and oftentimes when Draymond green has a prolific offensive game that means the other team is screwing up in transition defense and draymond green had 19 points Six of seven from the field, six of eight from the line, and 11 assists. So he had a double-double despite only having four rebounds. Could have gotten close to a triple-double there. And yeah, they were pushing. The Warriors were looking ahead. They were running the four hard. Wiggins had a couple nice finishes. And there were plays where I thought they were overthrowing one Warrior. And it's because there was a second one ahead of him. There were two Warriors ahead of any Timberwolf, which (laughs) was a huge, huge problem for Minnesota. And I thought that later on in the game, I I was talking in the second quarter about how I was excited to see Carl Anthony Towns getting downhill a little bit. In the last couple minutes of the second quarter, the Wolves got a little bit closer, and then that became partially a theme during the third quarter. And then Edwards was doing Edwards was doing better. He was getting some drives, getting getting some layup opportunities, some of which unfortunately went awry. But part of the problem for Minnesota was they, for the most part, especially in the first half, they did a lot of work to get shots that weren't actually that good. They were getting contested twos or pull up twos. And they didn't have, in part because of the transition play, they didn't have that diet of kind of like easy shots to make things work. And in the early, early part of the game, they weren't getting to the free throw line at all either. Yeah, 47 to 27 after the first quarter. The Wolves scored okay after that, but it took 14 to 35, 40% three-point shooting to do that. And Jalen Noel went crazy, hitting his first four three-pointers to kind of get them back into it, although it never really got closer than 13 until a brief jag in the fourth quarter got it down to 10 with five minutes remaining i mentioned some of these wolves weaknesses and transition defense is one of them with the gobert towns and russell in that starting lineup anthony edwards is very vulnerable to back cuts they got him on three or four of those and either got fouled or got layups Austin Rivers started this game. The Wolves were a little bit hamstrung by the fact that Jaden McDaniels was out with an illness. And then they also were missing Torian Prince and Jordan McLaughlin as well. Noel was the, the backup point guard. He played pretty well, at least in his role. But uh, obviously, Jaden McDaniels would have been someone who they could have used, although his shooting, has, as we noted, has been pretty anemic this year. He hasn't been getting up a, a lot of three-pointers. And the Wolves haven't been great on the defensive glass either. They got experience exploited there at times by the Warriors and obviously Carl Anthony Towns and his pick and roll defense 
is not amazing that forcing them to put two on the ball there was difficult or getting Gobert involved in the action and then uh, attacking Towns around the rim on back cuts and drives. So it was really, this was one of the first games this season and certainly the first one on the road where Golden State has really looked like Golden State. Should we talk a little bit about some of the rotational changes that Kerr has made to apparently well, stanch the bleeding on the, on yeah, the second Yeah, let's, let's get there and then I can go somewhere else. So um, what part of what Golden State has done and they, they've dabbled in this in the past is that while Draymond Green and Stephen Curry play extremely well together, I think Draymond Green's offensive game generally doesn't work super well without Steph on the floor. They are pulling Draymond Green a little earlier and incorporating Green and Andrew Wiggins in the unit that starts the second and fourth quarters. And so what that does is it helps provide a defensive foundation, but also these decision makers who can fit within the Warriors offense. And it's kind of allowed Jordan Poole to play closer to the role that he had starting and then kind of mixing it mixing up a little bit last year, as opposed to this like pure second unit creator that Kerr tasked him to be at the start of the year. And honestly, he pretty much failed at. Yeah, and to Kerr's credit, he's never really wanted Jordan Poole in that role. I think it made sense to try him there. I remember the theory of the second unit was Poole and James Wiseman running a lot of pick and roll, and James Wiseman wasn't ready for that, but neither was Jordan Poole. Like his handle is not quite tight enough to me to get to where he wants to go on the floor against pressure, and he's very, very good off the ball. And working with James Wiseman in pick and roll didn't allow him to do that. Now, playing with Draymond Green allows him to get back to that off-ball movement where he, he's kind of worked as a Steph light and he had the best run of his career when Steph was out last season, but Green had come back and running a lot of those same hand-back actions, relocate actions that Draymond and Steph like to run. So Draymond has given them more ball movement, more playmaking. They also got DiVincenzo back. They kind of had their nadir when DiVincenzo was out this year, and so that gives them another ball in there. DiVincenzo had his best offensive game of the season in this one with four of eight from downtown, 14 points. It was, uh, we put up 137, you see this, but it's very balanced scoring for the Warriors uh, with six players scoring 14 or more and three scoring in the 20s. Um, another thing that I thought was really nice to see was Jonathan Kaminga. To me, this maybe wasn't his best game as a Warrior. He was plus eight in 20 minutes, but I thought it was maybe his best game as a Warrior executing what they want him to do. He had, in the second quarter, his best stint as a help defender at the rim. He actually forced three or four misses at the rim as a help defender although the Wolves did miss a fair number of layups they probably should have made in this game and then he also was working well as a, a ball handler and connector on the perimeter setting up some of the DHO game as well then getting quick slips to the rim as some of those were set plays but some of them were nice cuts as well for Kaminga so it was he actually outplayed uh, Anthony Lamb who struggled in this one and had been getting minutes ahead of him at, at that four position and Michael Green, I thought, struggled a little bit in this one in his individual defense. So maybe we'll see Jonathan Kaminga. Now, young guys are young. They're inconsistent. You don't expect him to play this way. But it definitely seemed like he, the last couple of games, has turned a little bit of a corner well, for and, Golden State. And Nate, earlier on, you talked about whether the Warriors respect or don't respect certain Timberwolves. And I agree with you that it's a little bit of a mixed bag when it comes to Rudy Gobert. But one thing the Warriors do not respect is Rudy mm. Gobert offensively because there were a number of times where they either just like kind of left him in a circumstance. You know, I think there was a time where Andrew Wiggins was guarding Gobert and they're just like, okay, we can work with that. And then there was 
an absolutely devastating opportunity double where Gobert was posting up. I can't remember who he was posting up. The Warriors set a second player, not because they were worried about Gobert as a like as a scoring threat, but because they thought he was going to get completely flustered and he just basically like fumbled the ball off his knee and then the Warriors got a transition opportunity. And I, I have admitted this fault numerous times, but I thought that the even though they aren't identical players that you know the wolves were able to overcome jared van you know vanderbilt and they like oh they had a non-shooter at the other big spot jared vanderbilt's facility passing the ball is something that rudy gobert doesn't have and we you see this tension in their offense whenever townsend gobert on the floor together which seemed like part of the reason why chris finch was avoiding it as best he could yeah, that that was interesting, and they even went to Nas Reed at, at center in the second half at times to just try to jolt Anthony Edwards a, a little bit. But yeah, it seemed. And now Golden State is going to stress test you and your weaknesses more than basically any other team in NBA history. And so you could see maybe against this matchup, it, it wasn't as good. And even Golden State is unique, even in the Western Conference. But yeah, I thought Gobert part of why he's been such an offensive problem this year like he's hasn't caught the ball great he hasn't been at the crazy level of efficiency that he was in utah he's not getting anywhere near the number of alley-oop dunks that he used to get like they're just generally not spacing the floor as well carl anthony towns can shoot it but he's not going to just stand out there all the time the way i mean the four for the jazz was boy and bogdanovich and so carl anthony towns isn't going to play that same role he wants to be inside the arc he wants to drive gobert's kind of in his way and gobert just he just he'll slightly bobble the ball it's just so rare that you get him the ball and he just dunks it without incident right and uh he's they've done a little bit more posting up they tried that with them and it, it's it, like each of those individual posts up, it's like it doesn't go like so horribly he scores sometimes other times he doesn't like, like they want to try to cultivate that so that you can't just put some tiny guy on him i, I think I've lauded them for trying to get him more involved, but they are trying to get him a little too involved in some of these post-ups. And the other problem with that is then when someone else has a, a matchup, Gobert is kind of flashing across the lane into their driving lane. So that makes things a little bit more difficult than just having him out of the way at times on the offensive end. He'll get offensive rebounds, but he's not able to put him back or he'll get fouled and he'll make one out of two. So, and then on defense, he really wasn't able to have the same effect. There are a few Warriors drives where they were deterred by him in the early going, but then he goes out of the game and they immediately, like, they knew exactly, like, okay, Carl Towns is the center. We are going to mercilessly start attacking the rim. And they did that towards the end of that first quarter where they put up the 47. And then D'Angelo Russell, he started finding a little bit more pick and roll chemistry with Gobert, but they sure as hell didn't have it in this game. And you'd think that Russell, as a guy who can get the ball to Gobert, would be useful. But I think it was actually a little bit better for Gobert to have someone who could get down a little bit more but i think it's really more of a spacing issue you know, you'd think that conley and russell are relatively similar pick and roll players at least at this point in their career but they haven't they weren't able to connect in this game and russell got lit up on defense he had to guard one of steph curry clay thompson or andrew wiggins that uh did not go well for the wolves and so really disappointing they had won five straight and you're like okay Cavs, magic sixers heat pacers really the only one of those wins 
that was legit i thought was against the pacers all the other teams had major major injury issues and the wolves only really blew out the magic of those teams and they won by 14 against the pacers and then they lost at a crippled charlotte team on friday and then this complete waxing by golden state they are now 10 and 10 what are the rest of their fundamentals the wolves are 10 and 10 on the season four and two since last 1560 16th in net rating plus 0.9 18th in offense eighth in defense we'll get into that in a future iteration if, if it holds up uh raptor projects them to finish 500 41 and 41 and finish ninth in the west then elo also 41 and 41 but eighth in the west and gives them about a 50 percent chance of main playoffs and i want to throw in one more stat this is again we're not dealing with the full sample size yet last year 49 percent of rudy gobert's field goal attempts were dunks he finished with 233 dunks on the season this year, 28% of Gobert's field goal attempts are dunks. He has 34 on the season. Yeah, and you would think probably another 25% of them last year were like tips on the offensive glass or something. Yeah. So they, I mean, he is getting more of these post-ups and hooks and stuff, but it's, uh, there's a reason he hasn't been as efficient. And part of that is the team ecosystem that he is in. And this, again, is a team that just watching them, they didn't, there were times when they would certainly get in each other's way and Austin Rivers hasn't played much. They put him in to guard stuff, which he wasn't really able to do. Uh, obviously he's, he's had some pretty impossible tasks uh, over the years for the Rockets uh, and the Nuggets in playoff series trying to guard stuff. So, uh, but he hasn't played with this group either. And it's a difficult group to really find a rhythm with. And I think part of it too is, is just like even D'Angelo Russell, like, okay, like he's he's a guy who could make shots. Like Anthony Edwards sh- shoots threes, Carl Town shoots threes, whoever the three man is, the theory could shoot threes, but they all aren't really comfortable kind of taking turns in the sense that they are playing the supplemental role in a given possession. They're all kind of always looking for an opportunity to try to do what they do. And you have to kind of turn it on and turn it off selectively when these guys are all together and they just haven't found a, a way to do that. That said, I think like the defense with Gobert on the floor has been fine. And I think these guys are going to play better than they've played so far. But certainly this was a very disappointing step back over this weekend. All right, should I guess who's next? Sure. Well, next next would be the Memphis Grizzlies, but we already talked okay. about them. So okay. then after that. Um, I want to say it's going to be the Mavs now. You are correct. Do you want to give their stats? 9-10, however, after another loss today at Milwaukee. 2-5 and five since we last checked in on them. And they've been a relatively healthy team throughout this year. They lost Kleba for a few games, but nothing that really would give you... A, a reason to think that they shouldn't be better than this now they do have a 2.3 net rating they've blown some games against shorthanded teams that could have made things look a lot better they haven't been good in close games that's something i think we'll dig into more particularly assess clutch stats where they are very luka dependent at the end of games i want to see whether that kind of shows up and it could be a reason for why they have not traditionally been as good at, in clutch games but they're 10th on offense that's disappointing 14th on defense okay that's about what you'd expect they were top 10 last year but this isn't an elite talented team raptors still thinks they'll be the six seed 45 wins elo seven seed 44 wins and 75 percent chance at the playoffs for raptors 71 elo what happened in this game uh, against the raptors a couple of games ago oh man this was absolutely fascinating um it i'm sure you know like it's there are games that i watch 
And I think about how either enthralling or infuriating it would be if you were a partisan, if you were a fan of that team. And I haven't watched many games this season that I thought would have pissed me off more if I were a fan of the Dallas Mavericks. And a lot of that is due to the approach that Nick Nurse and the Raptors deployed. I I was thinking about this live. I'm like, oh, man, this would be just because so basically – Especially during the part of the game when I focused on, which was the the late the late going, though I had kept an eye on this game throughout because it was one of those weird days that there weren't many games going on. And basically what Nick Nurse was doing was he was using OG and Anobi as the primary defender on Luka. And it's hard to think of too many who are better because OG's A, a defensive monster, but B, also physically strong enough that Luka can't move him the way he can move most like-sized guys. But basically, whenever a second person came into an action, whether that was a Moxie Kleba screen or, you know, like you're bringing it could be, you know, Christian Woods coming into something. Basically, the Raptors were just straight up doubling in those circumstances. And so what that led to was a lot of what you would consider, you know, kind of good process stuff. So you have you're basically conceding a four on three to get the ball out of Lucas hands and the Mavericks generated 19 corner three pointers. They generated a fair amount of shots at the rim, but they were not able overall to make the Raptors pay. And part of why I said I talked about how it would be such an infuriating game is that you're you're creating these wide open looks in some ways like Luca does when the ball is in his hands for guys who you think would make more of them. But Reggie Bullock, 0 for 4 from 3 in this game. Hardaway Jr., 0 for 3. DFS, 3 for 9. And so... The Toronto Raptors, who have the defensive personnel to do other things, could have done it. But Dallas, and if you go into the like the last possession of the game where they doubled and Maxi Kleba gets the ball, but they're down three, so he passes out and it leads to an awkward shot. Like it, it they basically the 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 Ra- Raptors made a bet that Dallas couldn't make them pay, and that bet cashed out. Yeah, and there's a similar approach that the Raptors did against DeMar DeRozan in yeah. a couple of games against Chicago earlier on. But it was that was actually back-to-back home and away with Chicago, and Chicago did a better job in the second game there. Of course, no Pascal Siakam for the Raptors, but that's a, a game that if you're Dallas, you hope to win. Uh, and I mean, some of these numbers now for the Mad Sport, I mean, this is just like last year. Again, nobody can hit a shot. They got two guys who are making shots, but those are, are guys who are more on the self-created side uh, or you know are not these like corner three-point shooters who are supposed to be getting these wide open looks and knocking them down. Right. Yeah, that's one of the through lines of the Mavericks season so far. So Tim Hardaway Jr., I'm going to do the, the three-point attempt rates are going to be per 36 minutes. Yeah. Tim Hardaway Jr., 29% on 10 per 36. Finney Smith, 34%, pretty good, but not amazing, on 6 per 36. Bullock, 28% on 5.7 per 36. Christian Wood making his 45% on 4.6. Kleba, 28%. And then you have the two lead creators, Spencer Dinwiddie, who's making 41% on high volume, 7.7. And then Luca, who's still at 30% on the season. Yes, the Mavs, fifth in location e-field goal percentage. They don't take many mid-rangers, and it's basically Luca and maybe an occasional Wood ISO for those, but they're only 10th in actual e-field goal percentage. Uh, they're not hitting those long twos very well, 37%. Uh, this is a good Seth stat here, and we're going to start weaving these in. One of the stats that, that he has that we're hoping to make available to Dunked on Prime subscribers, uh, the whole sheet, so you can go through them yourself if you want to. Uh, but the Mavs are number one in the NBA with 12.7 self-created three-point field goal attempts per 100 possessions. That is 2.2 more 
per 100 possessions then houston who is in second and they're not a, a great offense and then they're taking so many of these self-created three point field goal attempts and they're shooting 29 percent on those that is oh. 20 26th best mark obviously self-created you know those are shots where you're holding on the ball for more than two seconds which is maybe a little bit better than the catch and shoot versus pull up because if you take one dribble just to elude the defender duncan robinson style that we're still not counting that as self-created that's kind of the point of why seth manipulates the numbers that way and you've made this point a lot that luca takes a lot of these and a defense is still respected that step back going to his left but he hasn't been hitting it so far this year and while dinwiddie has been shooting it really well most of those have been spot ups from the wings his off the dribble three-point shooting has been great he's even talked about how when he he was in Brooklyn he had to take a lot more off the dribble and part of why he's shooting so much better is because he's playing next to Luca and getting set up for some of those wing threes instead and so this is just a, a really bad number to be shooting that many of those and also shooting them that poorly and Nate just to just to put the to put the stats on it for Spencer Dinwiddie so far this year he's shooting a totally respectable better than better than most guys 37 percent on pull-up threes but an awesome 46 percent on catch and shoot so you could see I mean that that's pretty impressive overall and then one other thing I wanted to to talk about briefly tying back to that Raptors game which has been so frustrating for the Mavericks is that Dallas also doesn't make you pay in a couple of other key ways so they've been a pretty weak transition team they only had six fast break points and for Toronto that meant that they could attack the offensive glass aggressively and know that Dallas wasn't going to make them pay in this game the Raptors had a 38 percent offensive rebound rate Dallas's was just 15 percent only four individually credited offensive rebounds in Dallas four sorry 27th in the NBA in in offensive rebounding so far this year yeah and just in case we missed it Tim Hardaway Jr. shooting 29 percent on 10 threes for 36 Oh, and he was awful last year as well before he went to they've basically since signing that contract they've gotten nothing positive out of him and, and part of that was the injury maybe he would have played better and he maybe will play better going forward but when you throw that in then JaVale McGee who they signed to almost all of their tax pairman level who has again been usurped in the rotation by Dwight who, Paul. who, who by one. the way JaVale McGee in the game against the Bucks he played four yeah. minutes right yeah I, I mean they're kind of I think they're giving him some token minutes but he just hasn't been effective he, I think he may have just at, in his mid 30s he's not the wonderful offensive center that he has been in his career and hasn't given them the room protection they're hoping for either like Dwight Powell was was viewed as a weakness last year and I understand why they tried to upgrade but JaVale just hasn't been as good as he was the last uh, few years certainly last year in Phoenix and just again you go back to the Jalen Brunson thing where they basically have Jalen Brunson's salary on this team giving them absolutely nothing right now as opposed to just having paid Jalen Brunson like that really has to hurt as well as Jalen Brunson has played and and uh, you know I think he could really solve a lot of the issues that these guys are having offensively so far the next right, place I, yeah yeah well the, no come on let me let me guess that again okay good here Denver nope ah um Kings these are two teams in the vicinity but they're not next Clippers nope fuck 
the te- team that is exceeding expectations by by the most so far in the aggregate this year. Oh, yeah, Utah, Jesus. Yes. The Utah Jazz are 12 and 10 on the season, 2 and 5 since the last 15-60. We'll talk about we'll talk about what's a little bit a little bit different for them, but they're still 11th in the league in net rating plus 1.2, still second in offense, 117.2 per hundred possessions, but fourth from the bottom, 27th in defense, which is a concern. Both 538 yeah, models These teams have, are all like with that I named are all within like what 0.5 points per 100 in, uh, in within 0. Point, like within 0.3 Nate. It's okay. it's tr- it's I, extremely I feel, close. I feel better about myself. Yes. Um <laughs> at this point. Go ahead, sorry. The, the 538 models have come around on the Jazz. I mean, they played, you know, they played at this level so far. 44 wins on Raptor would be 7th, 46 wins on Elo would be 6th in the West and 69% chance of making the playoff per Raptor, 78 per Elo and it's true that the Jazz, like if you wanted to to boil it down to these base numbers, they've been eleven and six when Mike Conley's been in the rotation and one and four without him. But it is important and I think somewhat encouraging for the Jazz that yeah, they've lost a number of these games, but they've been close. This hasn't been yeah. them getting crushed. You know, they lost by one to the Suns on Saturday. They were in the game against the war the, against the Warriors for a while on Friday, and like all and they had that game against the Clippers about a week ago, and so like. I, I think that boy, that condensing it to wins and losses over kind of overstates the absence when I think they've still played like a good team since he went down. Yeah, Utah has played a ton of clutch games still uh, over the course uh, of the season, says another number that Seth is giving us. He talked about this uh, on the show last Monday of how your expected record in the clutch, it's not necessarily, oh, it's going to be 500 because how you enter the clutch, you can be up five, you can be down five. That changes your win expectancy a lot. But the Jazz have still won 1.3 more clutch games than expected to be uh, at eight and six right now in the clutch but they have uh, lost a few of those recently they were doing much better than that and the jazz are 26 in the nba over the last two weeks negative 4.3 net rating again that's nothing too atrocious they'd feel a lot better i think if they had won that game at home against detroit and they have been missing mike conley i wanted to look into how much that has been hurting them they're 11 and 6 in games that conley has played a substantial amount one and four without him and interestingly they actually have a higher offensive rating in the games that he has not been a substantial part of the rotation uh, 3.3 points per 100 higher 118.3 to 115 the defense falls off a cliff i don't think that's mike conley's fault they're a 123.5 defensively in the games conley has not figured for the season though they do play totally differently with conley on the floor 68.6 percent of their buckets are assisted when Mike Conley is on the floor. That's right up at the top of the league. That's Golden State Warriors level. Uh, and when he doesn't play, they're 59.7% of their buckets uh, assisted, which is pretty close to league average. And these last five games when he's been out, 58.8% of their buckets are assisted. And as you watch them, we talked about it in one of the gamers that we did that they had trouble getting into stuff late in the game, but they just are not getting those quick cuts to the room. I think Markinen, although he's continued to play well, has been hurt a little bit by that. I think Jared Vanderbilt has been hurt. Maybe Kelly Olenek a little bit as well. Like those guys are all good off ball movers, slippers of screens, 
that great video that Gibson Piper of half court hoops did Conley is making the pass a lot of times so these guys slipping out of wide pin downs for shooters to the rim and slipping out of other screening actions to the basket they just have not been getting those plays the offense has still been pretty solid but it's been a different way of attacking more isolation ball uh and maybe a little bit more shooting luck as well um the other problem though as we mentioned that defense has completely fallen off a, a cliff and the possession game is absolutely killing them right and utah uh, giving up 30.7% offensive rebounds, which is the second worst rate in the league ahead of only the Brooklyn Nets, who are at 31.9%, which is pretty heinous. And the Jazz aren't forcing a ton of turnovers. They're below average there. So they're they're turning they're below average in turning the ball over themselves, and they're below average in forcing turnovers and giving up a ton of defensive rebounds. Offensive this, rebounds, sorry. Yeah, this new starting lineup, I was like, well, you know, maybe it's just that they can't get a rebound when they don't have the three. Because remember, like they start Olenek, Markinen, and Vanderbilt. And then of course the, the new starting lineup has Suxton in place of Conley. And yeah, that helps their defensive rebounding a little bit but not much <laughs> they are uh with the three guys on the floor the three bigs oh no excuse me it's actually worse with the three bigs on the floor overall the new starting lineup is giving up 36 percent offensive rebounds although oh. they are getting they are getting a ton of, of offensive rebounds themselves so if you want to and then even when you go to their closing lineup with kelly olenic and larry marketing no vanderbilt or, or kessler they still can't get a rebound there either they're still giving up 33.5 percent offensive rebounds so basically any alignment they've had they've gotten crushed on the offensive glass even with personnel that should be a little bit better part of that is just you know conley sucks in like these are terrible guard rebounders they don't have any threes basically on the roster like malik beasley is kind of the closest thing to a normal three um so but they get a ton of offensive rebounds through vanderbilt markinen has been pretty good with that alinek is one of those three guys always seems to have a mismatch in the offensive guy so if you like a lot of offensive rebounds go which i kind of do actually go go watch a utah jazz game other good news though for the jazz is it looks like they stole one here in walker kessler what's he been doing kessler not asked to do a ton offensively but has been efficient in that role 11 usage 60 percent true shooting but part of what intrigued the two of us and we ended up seeing walker kessler primarily during jabari smith film because they played together at auburn last year is that it seemed like whenever auburn was doing something good defensively that it was actually walker kessler who was doing it not necessarily jabari smith and he has been a wonderful shot blocker shot alterer so far this year 7.9 percent two-point block percentage would be second behind Miles Turner if he qualified per basketball reference and he hasn't been that great in terms of the shots allowed at the rim metric or shooting a lot at the rim metric 57 percent shooting a lot but he has challenged 86 shots in 295 minutes which is actually third on the team and pretty good given how little he has played and he's playing maybe a third as many minutes as some of their other bigs and then you also look at the shot location data very favorable to his rim protection opponents take 4.8 percent fewer of their shots at the rim when he is in the game and they also take just about the exact same percentage more from long mid-range when he's out there so he hasn't reduced the percentage that much but he's challenging a ton of shots he's preventing a ton of shots and he's blocking a ton of shots and that's for a rookie you know he still can get in foul trouble but he definitely has an effect when he's out there and i think he's someone who can be a solid 25 minute a game type of starting center for a while he may have some offensive limitations i don't see him being a guy who's going to score outside of the rim area really 
at center. I don't know if he's going to be a guy you're going to run offense through at the elbows or anything like that, but as just a solid drop center who could be efficient around the basket, get some offensive rebounds where he's been good at as well. I'm excited about his future and hopefully y'all are excited about the future of dunked on as well we're going to get to the rest of the western conference we just saved all the bad teams for monday i guess happy monday everyone <laughs> but uh, we did a, a lot of interesting work on those we're going to talk about uh jalen williams in okc i did some film work uh, on him talk about uh the beam team although they uh have finally lost their seven game win streak uh so we'll get to all of that tomorrow thanks so much for being a subscriber and we'll be back then